A long time ago, we used to do wrestling podcasts. We haven't thought about doing that lately, but we have been thinking of ways to podcast again, and here we are. This is Mars Investigated, a podcast that explores the neo-noir teen drama that's aired on three networks and has had a fan-funded film. On each episode, we will discuss one season or film, where appropriate, of Veronica Mars. We will not spoil events from future seasons, and on this episode, we are going to discuss season one. My name is Jerome Cuson. I'm one of the co-hosts, and I have seen all four seasons and the movie. You can follow me on Twitter at JeromeC1985. We are part of the Real World Podcasting Network, a network that also includes Superhero Pantheon, a show that I host, and there will be movies. Please leave a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, so as to help people discover the great work we are doing here. My co-host is Kevin Ford. He has seen the first three seasons in the film. Do not spoil the fourth season on his Twitter account, at KFord13, or he will block you. I've blocked people for a lot less, and I'm going to block you for not mentioning from broadcast depth in that podcast uh, rundown of Enter the Real World things. Yes, you did a podcast about Lost, and here's a fun fact, Kevin. We are going to be talking about another show that premiered on September the 22nd, 2004. That is remarkable. Did they really debut on the same day? They both debuted on the same day, and one of those shows is very well regarded and has lived on over the years, and the other is Lost. (laughs) Oh, man. I knew that was coming. I knew to expect it. What can I say? There is one Damon Lindelof show I do like, and that is The Leftovers. Lost, not so much. But Kevin, we are not here to talk about anything Damon Lindelof related. We're here to talk about Rob Thomas tonight. Uh, the smooth guy, right? With uh, Carlos Santana. I absolutely knew you were going to do that. And I, that, that, was me, that was me feeding you in the paint and letting you dunk the basketball. I know you love sports metaphors. Well, what what I do love is in uh, iZombie, Rob Thomas brought in that Rob Thomas for an episode, and it made all Veronica Mars party down and iZombie fans rejoice. Amazing how that <laughs> works. Uh, I, I kind of gave up on iZombie, uh, I think, in like the third or fourth season, because it wasn't that great. So that's that's kind of my feelings on the show. But when we go back, when we think about Veronica Mars, of course, the show has lived on incredibly over 15 years, like I said, so many networks, a movie that was partially fan-funded. But before we actually discuss the first season itself, I thought we should talk about our relationship with the show, how we first started to watch it, and what made us really enjoy it. So, Kevin, I'm going to let you go first. I remember my... I have an older brother. He's about four years older than me, and I owe a lot of what I've watched, consumed over time to him. Like he introduced me to, to Quentin Tarantino movies, Kevin Smith movies, uh, Buffy, the vampire slayer. Uh, they might be giants. All these things I give him credit for introducing into my life. Um, and Veronica Mars is another one of those things. He was in college when it was starting. So I guess if this was September, 2004, he would have been a junior in college when I was a junior in high school. And I don't think he told me about it when the first season aired. He might have told me the summer after because I, I remember summer 05 is when I watched Buffy. And I really liked it. And he I think he said, I think you would really like this show, Veronica Mars, if you liked if you liked Buffy, too. Um, and I think by that point, I was, you know, TV shows on DVD were a big thing back then with no streaming services and all that. And so I think I was like, yeah, maybe I'll watch it. But I already missed the first season, so maybe I'll catch up on some other time. And then 
years later, I ended up purchasing the three seasons that were out at the time on DVD for like 20 bucks each. They were, I, I did that a lot where like a, if a show went on sale, even if I hadn't seen it, but I intended to watch it, I just bought it all. I did that with Veronica Mars and I sat on it for a long time until I moved in with a, a roommate in 2012 and he turned out to be Veronica Mars man too. And so I decided, you know what? I've had these box sets for long enough. Let's just watch the dang thing. And I sat down and I watched all three seasons back to back to back with some warning about the that, you know, hey, the third season kind of ends on a cliffhanger just so you know. Because at this time, there was no movie. There was no four seasons. So Veronica Mars fans were in this weird limo of, oh, no, we never got to see a conclusion to season three. Uh, but either way, that's when I sat down and watched it. Really liked it because it was it was a good way to bond with my roommate when we first moved into for a mutual show and to finally watch the show that I just owned for so long. Yeah, and I think it's funny that you mentioned this idea of physical media because there was a time when DVDs were really important to how people consumed media. And I think specifically for me, I wasn't someone who watched a lot of television shows because the idea of making an appointment to say, I'm going to sit down and watch such and such a show is like too great of a commitment for me because I was either in school or doing different things, social activities. So it was really hard to commit to say I was going to do this. But there was a time, Kevin, I don't know if you realize this, but Netflix used to be a company where you could rent DVDs and they would physically send them through the mail to you and you would watch these DVDs. I know this is this is kind of mind-blowing stuff for some of our younger listeners. Uh, right. But yeah, that's, that's definitely how I remember watching like Breaking Bad and Dexter and all that stuff because it was in that time frame. I think uh, True Blood, too. Like That was in that time frame where... Like 2010, 2011, those were the hot shows, and Netflix was still just a DVD company. So I started watching a lot more TV because I could just get the discs of the show. So I would start watching shows like The West Wing and Six Feet Under. Like Those are shows that I specifically remember watching and falling in love with because I could kind of binge four episodes, send the disc back, get it back a couple days later. And I had heard a little bit about this show called Veronica Mars based on the fact that I was a fan of the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I think the show takes a lot of influence from. And there came a point when I decided to to catch the show and I very quickly fell in love with it. And I think binging the show is so much more helpful than watching it on a weekly basis. I cannot imagine trying to keep up with all of the different plot lines and some of the different characters because the, the especially the last few episodes there is a lot going on and I could see why people stopped watching and why this was one of the lowest rated shows on UPN at the time because this is such a hard show to follow and being able to binge it on Hulu or on the DVDs that's the only way that I could see actually enjoying it uh, yeah, I guess I can I could see that point. I, but it's now that you've mentioned that Lost in it debut that debuted on the same date, and thinking about the podcast we did is that Lost had such a fervent fan community online that gave people enough time in between episodes to talk about theories and remind each other of things that went on. That I guess that wasn't a huge issue because I mean you, you had people treating those Lost episodes like the Sapruder film, right? I don't know that. Veronica Mars fostered that same amount of fandom. I, and I mean, that's not to say there isn't a huge Veronica Mars, you know, cult or anything like that, but I just don't think it, it's similar in that, um, 
you had these people keeping up week to week with uh, the the Lily Kane case and putting these things together. It's something that you're kind of watching and try to piece together on your own. And even the recaps at the beginning of the episode would give you the broad strokes of the overall seasons of the story, but I don't think they did like the best job of going too in depth. And they also went by really, really fast. Yeah, I mean, they would try to get across a lot, and I think the season finale, I think the, the recap was legitimately like two and a half minutes, uh, which just shows you just how dense, how plot-dense this show was, and for I, I, I give it credit for being a network show. Again, this was on a network that no longer exists, UPN. That's where the first two seasons aired, and this was one of the lowest-rated primetime series to get renewed for a second series, for a second season. And maybe if it was on a, a bigger network or if it was on a cable network, maybe it would have had a, more of a chance to succeed. But unfortunately, it was airing on UPN, and the fact that UPN no longer exists speak to, speaks to how good or, of a network that was. Yeah, I... And I, I th- it is interesting we talk about some of the parallels between it and Buffy in general. You know, Buffy ended uh, spring of 2003, and then this is on the air in fall of 2004. So I can't help but feel like maybe they were trying to recapture some of that magic. But really, Buffy was such lightning in the bottle that I think if the executives were expecting us to do Buffy numbers right off the, the bat or to be such a success, you're already going to be disappointed no matter what, because it's just not realistic to come in with those expectations. And I don't know if that's what the case was, but you know, it, you have to imagine that, 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 that is something that could have crossed some of the executives minds. Right. Especially because Buffy started on the WB for five seasons. It ended its run on UPN and here UPN is trying to kind of recapture the magic, so to speak. And I think that the one thing that they did right was they certainly cast the right person in in that lead role. And that being Kristen Bell as Veronica Mars. I mean, fundamentally, this show does not work without her. She is the MVP in a lot of ways, and the fact that she has been able to go on and have such a great career, I think, is a testament to just how good of a performer she is on the small screen. The fact that uh, she is on, she was on a Showtime show for five seasons after this. The fact that she's in the two Frozen movies doing voiceover. Uh, the Good Place. This is somebody who has kind of been able to transcend this role, and I'm really happy for her because, again, I think she's really fantastic. But if Kristen Bell is not as good as she is, especially on the voiceover stuff, then this show just doesn't work. I completely agree with you, and I can say that I had never heard of Kristen Bell before the show. I don't know what her acting resume looked like before Veronica Mars, but this certainly put her on the map as a and right away as a as a leading role and yeah i i don't it, it's impossible to imagine the show without her in it uh i mean you if you just go and see like how many awards she was nominated for for the show it goes to show you how well she did and even you know reading that she never got like a an emmy nomination and some critics felt like that was kind of a snub that she never did uh, and this is somebody who is a young actress in her career, and she was young herself when she took on this role. So for, you know, sometimes you have, it's I know it's not the Academy, but people in these awards who often might not choose somebody like a Kristen Bell or a show like this. They might look down on a show like this, in fact, for words like this, to say she got snubbed, I think, says a lot about how well she did in the role here. 
Well, and one of the offset cliches about voiceover is it's that it's very lazy screenwriting, but I think in this case, because they're kind of going for this neo-noir feel, I think it's really important to have that voiceover. And again, because there's so much going on plot-wise, I think the voiceover in this case, is a really effective tool, and I think Kristen Bell is really good at it. So good at it, in fact, that she would go on to also vo- do voiceover for a CW show called Gossip Girl, which I have not watched a minute of, but I think that's that's pretty funny to think about, that her voiceover was apparently so good on this show that they just had her do it on another one. Yeah, I think you mentioned that when I when I told you I forgot that Leighton Meester was in a couple episodes here, and you mentioned the Gossip Girl connection. Uh, I I really like the voiceovers too, both because it helps reminders of the plot or it helps carry the plot along. And I think that's a more creative device than what they will often do sometimes in these noir shows where it's just like, it, like they could have had so many scenes with her and her dad sit down and kind of recap where they stood in investigation. But that that would have gotten old quickly. And I think having these voiceovers and her internal monologue or talking to the audience in a way was was a was a great way to accomplish that same goal and much less uh, annoying much much less annoying than it would have been just having her and Keith talk over and over again. Yeah, Kristen Bell is great. I think the other person that we have to talk about, you mentioned her father and I think we have to talk about Keith Mars, Enrico Colatani. He is somebody who's been on a lot of sitcoms. He was on Just Shoot Me for a number of years and the idea of him playing this Basically, a single father on a drama is not something that I think people would have been considering at this point in the year 2004. But something that I'd noticed, because I have seen season four, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but just seeing those two together and the chemistry is still there after 15 years. And then going back and starting again with season one, it's it's like there hasn't been a change in the way that those two have interacted with each other. And I think that their relationship in so many ways is at the heart of this show. Whereas I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so much of that, the reason that show was successful is because Buffy had her Scooby gang. In this case, Veronica doesn't really have a lot of friends. She really doesn't have a Scooby gang. Wallace and Mac are certainly a part of her life, and Logan is to an extent. But it never feels like Veronica has like her clique that she is constantly with all the time and has built these relationships. The only person that she really has that with is Keith Mars. And I think the most impressive thing to me is that on shows like this, when you have single parents, I think... In some cases, they they try to create this conflict between the father and the daughter, or they try to have like the, a fail daughter or fail son situation. And I think Logan is that to a certain extent, but the relationship between Veronica and Keith, I don't think gets enough credit for just the way that he was actually a good father. And she really didn't try to hide... I mean, she did try to hide things from him, but they had a mostly open and honest relationship, and they could talk about things. And Veronica wasn't sneaking around being a PI behind her father's back. She worked in the office, and she did things like he did, uh, like going on stakeouts and things like that. So the fact that they had such great parental daughter chemistry, uh, the show doesn't work without it. And, and not just parental daughter chemistry, but father daughter chemistry. I thought it was actually a really bold choice to not do the father that abandoned them and have the mother stick around to be with Veronica Mars. Uh, I think 
I think it's pretty, I mean, I, I don't know every show, of course, but I think it is more common to have a same-sex situation with the parent that sticks around and the kid for most of the time, or if not that, it's usually the mother who sticks around more so than the father. Uh, so to have that dynamic right off the bat is unique in and of itself, but I the thing I like about the relationship is they're definitely more more honest and open, and I would say f- they have a more friendly relationship than most parents and children do, but there's still that respect there between the two of them. And I think what I like seeing is is Keith is not afraid to put his foot down or make sure uh, that Veronica doesn't cross a certain line. He has to remind her, hey, you're still my daughter when, when, when it comes down to it. It doesn't happen often, but he definitely does still have that fatherly, you know, power over her. And uh, when he needs to use it, he will. But uh, overall, their their relationship and their chemistry is off the charts. Well, and one of the things that they will often do in these kinds of situations is if there is a single father, they will often have the father, like, be clueless as to what's going on or be like, I don't understand you because you have a vagina or things like that. Like, that's what they will do instead of having a relationship. And while while it's not perfect, you don't get the sense that he doesn't understand what's going on. Like, he knows what his daughter is doing, even if sometimes she is trying to get away with something. Yeah, uh, I still say that to everyone in my life. (laughs) That uh, That is not a surprise. I think probably one of my favorite Keith Veronica moments is not even a moment where Keith is involved, but when Veronica tries to go into the safe, into the safe, and it's and she gets squirted with all this blue liquid. <laughs> yes, it's it's genuinely one of those great moments because you're not quite sure what's what's going to happen here, and you're not sure whether Keith actually knows what's going on. But my goodness, is that that is just a perfect encapsulation of, of kind of some of the dynamics that, that go on between them. But it's not like he's being malicious to her. He doesn't even really get mad at her when he sees her with all that blue stuff on her. I know. And she's not even that mad at him. Like, she's annoyed by it. But it's but it's sort of like a, uh, yeah, you got me. Like, what do you, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? Yeah, that's. I think that's that's probably one of the one of the better moments. And Kevin, I know you had you have a favorite moment that Keith and Veronica share towards the end of the first season. Yeah, I when you know there's this there's the whole sub thing here of is her father really her father? There's a kind of a side plot where she learns her mother went to the prom with her ex boyfriend's father, and somebody puts it in her head that. That guy is really her dad, which obviously messes with her mind a whole bunch. So even she sends away for a DNA test and trashes it, deciding, you know what? It really doesn't matter. I, You know, I, I love Keith. He's really my father, even if he's not biologically my father. She doesn't say all this, but that's the idea you get. And I really like that. But then Keith decides he's going to have his own DNA test. And then you find out in the final episode, Keith is indeed Veronica's real father. And they share this really tender moment. And it was genuinely really sweet and touching. For sure. And I think that that, I mean, what a what a great payoff to, to the entire season after they've been through so much together. And uh, it was it was a really great moment. And it was even even further made poignant by the fact that Keith is the one who saves Veronica in the end too. It's not it's not Logan, it's not Duncan, it's not Wallace, it's not Mac. It's Keith that is the one that saves her. And I think that's a really powerful statement as well. The fact that he is in so many ways the most important person in her life throughout the entire run of this of this show. Yeah, and I think that the exclamation point on that is that a lot of 
what she wants to do as part of the season is to find her mother and get the family back together. And her mother is an alcoholic and she's run off. And so she spends her, her college savings to put her mother into rehab. And at some point her mother does come back into the house and things seem like they're kind of sort of getting back to normal. Keith is begins dating Wallace's mom and ends up breaking up with her because he wants to try to get the family back together. Uh, But Veronica realizes that her mom's rehab was unsuccessful, but she also realizes that maybe it's not the family getting back together is not what I want, especially because in her words, she gambled on her mother and lost. But what was really important to her is that her dad was happy. And that's why when he was in the hospital, he called Wallace's mom and had her be there by his bedside when he got better. Because in the end of the day, she'd rather have him be happy with this, uh, this woman who does make him happy than have her mom back. And I think that speaks a lot to their relationship, too, and everything else with Keith and Veronica. I think it speaks to almost how irrelevant Veronica's mom becomes toward the end of the season when in the finale, there's just so much going on. And you're like, oh, Veronica's mom is in the apartment. I completely forgot that was a thing. And I've watched this this season like three or four times. And I think they, they kind of telegraph the fact that the mom was not going to play an important role. And I'm almost glad that they just completely wrote her out as opposed to having her be a fail mom or something like that. So did I. It was when she came back, like the dynamic almost felt like it was off again with her being there. You almost wanted to just go back to the default of, of Veronica and Keith. Yeah, they're, they're a wacky sitcom that's going on. Okay, so we have to talk about Logan because he is such an important character in the history of, of the show. And his relationship with Veronica, I don't know what your position is on kind of their love story over the course of the entire run of the show. And maybe that's going to affect how you view Logan. But I, I definitely noticed when I was watching this time that Logan is a monster in the very early episodes. You watch those first few episodes, and as a human being, he is an abomination. And I don't know whether Rob Thomas saw something as he was editing the footage, where he saw the chemistry that was there between Jason Doring and Kristen Bell, but there is a very clear shift in those middle episodes where they shift away from Veronica even being interested and in going back to Duncan and very clearly softening up Logan so that they could that they could engage in their relationship toward the end of the season. I don't know if that's something that you noticed, but definitely they Rob Thomas knew that there was something there. There's definitely a shift where Logan goes from being irredeemable asshole to being the love interest of Veronica and you and you finally get to see a little bit deeper into why he is the way he is and and there is starts to be this uh this uh this the softer side of him that you can find to, relatable in some ways and with uh with Duncan he becomes like the the shy ex-boyfriend who uh you, in some ways just because you're starting the show knowing they were exes you're kind of hoping that things turn out okay for them then he just becomes kind of a loose cannon so there's definitely a, a pretty big character change for both of them, and that and I and I do wonder if that was something where they're watching these episodes, they and they see things and they and they decide to just uh, just call it and and make a character switch there. But um, it definitely felt like, in some respects, because of everything we saw with Logan, that him and Veronica hooking up at the end of the season does kind of come unexpectedly. 
I don't know how anybody would have called it, especially in the first few episodes of the series, anyway. Very clearly, Jason Doring shows a lot more personality than Teddy Dunn does, and I don't know, part of this, I'm sure, was because of Duncan's storyline, but I never really got a good sense of Duncan as a character if through the first season and in his time in the second season, and I think that that, that is kind of an issue that the show had, is that I never really bought Duncan as as a possible love interest, and if we're going to extend the Buffy the Vampire parallel, then Duncan is kind of Veronica's angel, and Logan is kind of Buffy's spike, but there really isn't much of a competition, because regardless of what you think of Logan, just as a character, he is fundamentally more interesting in these first few episodes, and has more personality than Duncan ever does. I agree with you, and even... I can't remember his name right now, but the friend of Duncan's who ends up dating Veronica for like the first few episodes of the season, they go to homecoming together and all that. Uh, the actor is Aaron Ashmore. I know that. Okay. I, I did not think that relationship really landed. Like I thought it was, it was just there to kind of give her some romantic thing to do to make Duncan jealous, but it never was anything I was super invested in seeing them become long-term or anything like that. Right, and I think that this is one of the those issues with a show like this, where you know that there is that that Veronica is either going to get with Duncan, or she's going to get with Logan at some point. You know that this stuff is going to happen. So anyone else that she dates, it's it's not going to work. I mean, this is something that other shows have had. When when you do the will they or won't they kind of aspect of things, then any of the other potential significant others are just distractions. Yeah, it, you, and that's, I think, part of why I didn't get into it. I'm like, this just feels like it's not built to last. And it doesn't, and it's, it's fine, but I guess even even they have, like, that girl that Wallace was seeing, she kind of just disappears after a little bit, and it's like, did they just have these two couples to do this homecoming episode? Because then they very quickly disappear afterwards. At least they write off Aaron Ashmore's character. Well, the person that I felt sorry for was uh, Cindy Poitier's character, uh, of course, the daughter of the, the legendary actor. She was in the opening credits, she was in a few episodes, and then she is never seen again. And I guess the idea was that she was meant to be like a female mentor for Veronica, and there were too many damn characters on the show, so they had to watch her, they had to write her out. So I think it's unfortunate that she really did get a lot to do. But then they write her out because she gets knocked up and has to leave. It's like, well, that is not a great way to write this character off. Yeah, not not great. Uh, I also heard budget cuts might have played a role in that. Right. I mean, it's all rumor and conjecture at this point. You, you, you don't know what's, what's, what's happening. But so one of the things that surprised both of us was that Logan and Veronica, their relationship started this season. I, I kind of forgot that it started this early in the run, and they were getting pretty hot and heavy in episode 7 and 18 even, and it was really surprising just how quickly the the shift happened, and I guess it really didn't bother me at the end of the first season, but as we start talking more about how their relationship develops, I don't know, I've never totally been comfortable with those two just as a, as a love item long term. <sighs> Well, I can't say too much without giving spoilers, but at this point in season one, I actually do think they did a pretty decent job of getting it to make to to be a little bit more palatable by the end of the season. I think getting Duncan, uh, getting Duncan hooked up with another person, and Veronica, so Veronica Mars can 
So you can you make him unavailable, and that's not an option. She can just run back to him, right? And Duncan is also dating someone who is basically the nicest person in the school and is also friends with Veronica. Right, so you can't hate her because Duncan's dating her. So uh, they successfully took care of that. And then I actually did like the scene where uh, Aaron Eccles has a surprise birthday party for Logan. Logan and Veronica are still kind of seeing each other in secret. Logan's friends, by and large, do not care for Veronica. She's been outcast because of the whole Lily Kane murder situation. Uh, and he just, he basically says, if you're not cool with her, then get the, get the hell out. And I actually really like that moment of him. Yeah, I think that's one of the finest moments that he has had on the show, and I think that does a really good job of justifying this relationship. The season one stuff really doesn't bother me. I can, I mean, it's high school. Hormones are flying, and people are going to hook up, even if you sometimes don't always like them. So I, I understood it from this perspective, and it got Logan kind of into the main plot line more and kind of shifted Duncan away, which is, like, which I, again, I think is a good thing, because Jason Doring is a, is a much better performer than I think Teddy Dunn is. Uh, we do. I do want to talk about a few more characters before we talk about some of the plot, some of the, our favorite moments and episodes. Let's talk about Wallace, who basically is Veronica's best friend. I guess if we're going with the Buffy metaphor, she's kind of the Xander of the group. They, they don't even tease a romance between these two. No. And I, I almost wonder, is it like a racial thing, the fact that he was black and she was white, and they just didn't even want to tease and go in that direction because... That that is something that could still exist in 2004 as much as as much as we don't want it. It probably would still be an issue in 2019. But uh, Veronica sure does use Wallace a lot. <laughs> and even I I felt like he wasn't as prominent in season one than I remembered. Uh, but yeah, you're right. He he she really abuses the privilege of him being in the office with attendance records and things like that to to use. But I, I guess saving him from being stuck to the flagpole on day one kind of indebts you for life when you're at a new school in his case. But yeah, I never even thought of the, the taboo nature of the, them being different races. I kind of, to the credit of the show, I think there's a lot of things that they do that are either sort of ahead of the curve in, socially or they go against the grain like we talked about with Keith Mars and Veronica. And I thought that them having these two friends – who are of different sexes and having no sexual chemistry whatsoever, like not even a hint of it. Uh, it, I don't want to say it's a bold choice, but it is a refreshing choice that they don't even bother going in that direction. In fact, I think them doing it with the parents makes it uh, more interesting and more uh, and a lot funnier to put it in that, in that context instead. Uh, But yeah, they're, they're obviously a fun pair. I really, uh, I don't know if it would be one of my favorite episodes. Actually, it might be, but the one where Wallace is the basketball superstar and she's making him uh, snickerdoodle cookies and all that other stuff. I'm glad that he got his moment to shine, but I also like that they didn't go with the route that because he's a jockey becomes a total jerk to Veronica and like abandons her for his basketball star friends. Like they're they're good friends through and through, and that's something that they make sure to to keep intact throughout the whole series. Do we want to talk about Wallace's friend played by Zachary Ty Bryan? No. I forgot that he was even Wallace's friend in the show. He was on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I feel like he played the same role in both this show and Buffy. I mean, that happens a lot with, with character actors. Well, not even character actors, but like I'm, I'm thinking of some of the guest stars here. You could say the same thing for some of them, and I know we're going to talk about guest stars later. 
But I, yeah, I completely forgot that Zachary Ty Bryant was in the show at all. I, does he even come back for other seasons, or is he, or is he done after this? I believe that he was, he was done. I can't believe two of the three Home Improvement kids were, were on here. Amazing. I didn't forgot that JTT was still doing roles at this point in his career. I thought he was totally done after, like you know, two thousand, two thousand one. There, there are some tremendous guest stars, but before we get to that, let's talk about Mac. I know that she is one of your favorite characters. This is this is a child star who is who has done some good and still has a career. I wish Mac was more prominent. That's what I realized as I was watching this. And again, I understand that there's so much plot going on, but it really feels like Veronica not having a female friend just it felt off at certain times and it felt like Matt could have kind of filled that role but again Veronica uses Matt quite a bit for her own purposes but I guess when you find out that Mac's family really isn't her own I guess Mac also owes Veronica a life debt as well right and and I think that's kind of maybe why Veronica doesn't have too many friends now because think about she just lost her entire friends group in one fell swoop so she can find some people who can trust and help her. But I don't know that she's that ready to start making like super close friends. I, I, hey, if I was in her shoes, I'd probably be hesitant to do the same. So she's still probably trying to feel out Mac and, and Wallace to a certain extent. Uh, although she definitely gets closer with Wallace than she does Mac. And I completely agree with you. I, I don't think Mac gets her due in season one at all. Uh, I do think the, the switch at birth thing is kind of like an interesting wrinkle. Um, you get a good episode out of it anyways. But I... I I was going to say, I kind of wish they had done more with that and explored it a little bit more. But I guess with her not being a main character and not being a part of the main cast, I guess they really couldn't afford to do that. But I think exploring that more would have been worthwhile. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of options you could you could take that. But I think at the at the end of the day, they got the character who could be the tech whiz, which can be their uh, deus ex machina for a lot a, a lot of instances as the show progresses. And you spoke about kind of being ahead of the curve, and I think Weevil is somebody that I think they did a lot with in this first season. There's a lot of nuance to his character, especially those first couple episodes. You think that he is one thing, and you're kind of playing into the stereotypes of him being in a gang, him being a person of color, and kind of being involved with less than legal activities, but then you kind of come to understand and see him as an ally of Veronica, and... The fact that he is trying to do well, and I think that one of the things that I appreciate about this show, just as in general, is that even though this is a neo-noir teen drama, there are so few shows, especially dramas, that deal with the issue of class and race, and I think that while I certainly would have liked to have seen them dive even deeper into this... I think there was a lot of good stuff when they talked about class, and I think that they at least tried to make Weevil a a redeemable character, just like so many of other Veronica's other friends. They probably could have done even more, but I think that Francis Capra does a really good job as Weevil in giving him nuance and giving him a, a, a number of episodes where he plays a, an important role. Yeah, quite truthfully, he's probably the he's a he's a character who I really who I liked when I watched it, but he's somebody who I came away with thinking even more highly of his performance in the show. Yeah, when we talk about the the progressive nature of the show, I think the the way they did handle the differences between classes, even talking about if you're from this area code versus the other, the haves and the have-nots, uh, going into into the the racial divide. 
but they make sure that you know that Weevil is just as at, at least smart or has the, the street smarts to match your your Logan's, um, that he has a lot of redeemable qualities, that he isn't just like this thuggish person to out of nowhere, but that he's that he's smart, that he's that he cares about his family. And I even think him and hit whatever his relationship he had with Lily exposes a lot of that uh, inner gentleness of him as well. And I think he's he might be one of the more well-rounded and deeper characters they developed in season one in general. I I really do appreciate what they did with Weevil in this first season. And as we go in future seasons, I'm going to kind of have a kind of a different reaction, but I really like the way that kind of his arc played out and even his relationship with Lily Kane. I think they gave that a a lot of nuance and they, they paid a lot of lip service uh, to it at least. Um, There are a couple more characters that I want to talk about. One of whom is Lily Kane played by Amanda Seyfried, who has, of course, gone on to be in a number of big-time movies, and she kind of plays uh, the the dead girl, which is such a cliché in fiction these days, going back to shows like Twin Peaks and even so many other shows, like your True Detectives kind of played into that as well. But in this case, we, we kind of have the, the innocent dead girl, and I think that she doesn't get a lot to do, but you can certainly see why she became a movie star, just based on her brief scenes and the personality that she brought. And if they have, if they had done like a flat, full flashback episode, I think she would have she would have been really great in it. I you want to talk about how this show wouldn't have been the same without Kristen Bell? I think Amanda Seyfried not being in this would have made a different show. And I I've talked about in the Lost podcast how in some ways. Uh, Dominic Monaghan was a really important character for that first season because he was he could be a gateway character like, oh, I know I know him from Lord of the Rings. I'll check him out on this show. And, you know, Mean Girls was only about like under five months old when this show debuted and to be on the WB, which was really going after the the teenage female demographic at the time. I'm sure there's a lot of who thought, oh, the girl from Mean Girls, maybe I'll check this show out and see what that's all about. Um, so I think in that way, she maybe served the same role that Dominic Monaghan did. And, uh, when doing some reading about this, I heard that, uh, Rob Thomas felt Amanda was so good in the role as Lily Kane that she was used more times than he initially planned in the first season. And I'm glad he did because she was really, really great in those flashbacks. I, and I think obviously with the death of Lily Kane being the centric story for the season, Lily Kane herself needed to be compelling and a very good character and, and have their their charms and mystery to them, and I think she nailed it. Yeah, I think it's it's her eyes. I think that's what really sells so much of what she does. And the only other characters I wanted to talk about, the Casablancas brothers, they are kind of introduced early on. They get almost nothing to do. They almost get no lines. But we do see them a little bit more toward the end of the season, and I did at least want to mention those two as being friends of Logan and having a relationship because we will be talking more about them next season. But Ryan Hansen has kind of become a, a star. And in the second episode, he's basically just like an extra. Yeah, he's really hot. So that helps. Uh, but, and I got to know him much better in, in Party Down than I, cause I, I feel like I did watch Party Down before I watched Veronica Mars, which is funny to, to, it's like what I knew those characters going into this and seeing how some of the roles reverse Cause he's a huge character in Party Down. Uh, compared to the first season where you're right, he's barely there at all. He has no redeemable qualities because he doesn't have time to get any. And then they just, and then Beaver gets introduced in what, like the last two episodes. 
So you're you you basically get just a taste of those guys, and they kind of give you that teaser where Beaver's getting nervous at the end, and and uh, Dick says something like, you know, hey, we're it's a secret we'll take to the grave. You're thinking it has something to do with the Lily Kane murder. Well, that gets wrapped up, and they're not involved in that. And then uh, that that's a little hanging moment for the for to take us into the next season, which is very interesting. Uh, Ryan Hansen's character kind of kind of rapey a little bit. You know, there's uh, there's a lot of that going around throughout uh, throughout the season. And it's Dick is dating Madison Sinclair, right? Right. And how can we forget Paris Hilton? Oh my God, I forgot she was in that one episode. It's it is inexplicable to me that she's just there and not a great actress, not at all. Now was this was this a time where she still had some celebrity clout, so they brought her in, or was she using her celebrity clout to try to get into acting genuinely? I think it it was probably a combination of the two, because there was a, definitely a time when she and Nicole Richie, when they had that terrible reality show. Like, that was a big deal, and Paris Hilton was a big deal. I mean, South Park did an episode where they made fun of her, and South Park doesn't just make fun of anything. So there was a point when she was a big deal, and I think this was around that time. There was a movie, I think it was House of Wax, they did a remake of House of Wax, and one of the ways they literally promoted this movie is that you could see see Paris Hilton die. (laughs) That is... um... Dark, but yeah, probably true. There was a Tom Cruise movie where he died like a million times, and they kind of promoted it off of that, too. So it, this definitely happens with actors and people who are not well-liked. Yeah, I, I guess that's, you know, it, it's it's one way to make money off of the people that hate these actors to such a weird degree they want to see them die, and for the actors to not care and get another paycheck from it. So that's so. What a weird thing. Like, does that still happen? I feel like that's that's such, like, a early 2000s thing. I mean, the Tom Cruise movie that I'm referring to, Live, Die, Repeat, I mean, that was just, like, four years ago. And I think part of the reason that people go see Mission Impossible movies is because Tom Cruise does his own stunts and because there is this idea that he's going to die on screen. And I think people kind of want to see it because I think people don't like Tom Cruise, but they like Tom Cruise movies, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, there's some people I know who really love the Mission Impossible movies who, you know, don't don't care at all about Tom Cruise. You know, either are indifferent or dislike him as a human being or, you know, think he's weird because of all the Scientology stuff. Um, but there is just this weird mis- mystique to death, too. I mean, talk about, you know, how much the, the Dark Knight uh, got its press a lot of because of Heath Ledger's death, you know? I know it's a little different because it's, you know not him doing his own son, seeing him die on screen, but because he had died before it come out, there was a lot more mystique and uh, interest in that movie because of it. Well, and I think that that is part of, in weaving it back to this show, I think that that is one of the appeal of the show and so many true crime shows is that you want to know how people died, why people died. This is the appeal of a show like Mindhunter where they're talking about serial killers. There is a fascination with death that undoubtedly exists because if you think about all the true crime podcasts that exist, it's because of our fascination with it and in mysteries themselves. And to further create a nice segue, Jason Doring is also a Scientologist, as I recently found out, and nearly vomited, nearly vomited when I read that. Yeah, I, I guess it's a good thing our fa- our fandom of this show supersedes our knowledge of that because I feel like it's easier to forget and forgive 
if you don't have prior knowledge watching it the first time than it is after the fact. All right, Kevin. So the dis- let's discuss the main plot here. So there's there's kind of two different threads that are going on that that are very important for the first season and even into the second season. As there, Lily Kane has been murdered. This is taking place just a, the the start of the series is taking place just a few months after her passing. And so Veronica Mars does not believe that Abel Koontz is in fact the person that murdered Lily Kane. And this entire season is about investigating that murder. They're the secondary plot line, which is something that if this show came out in 2019, I think there would be a lot of critics who would who would criticize this aspect of things because, again, this is something that's revealed in the first episode that Veronica Mars has been raped slash sexually assaulted and that is an important part of her character development and that is something that isn't as emphasized as much and I think a lot of that has to do with this being a network show. So they do come back to it toward the end of the season as Veronica tries to find out what happens. And there are a lot of twists along the way. It is discovered that Abel Koontz did not, in fact, commit the murder. They introduce Aaron Eccles a few episodes into this run. And part of what fascinated me about Aaron Eccles, just in watching this for the first time, is they seem to be going in all of these different directions with him. On one hand, he is very clearly physically abusive to Logan, but on the other hand, he's kind of trying to be a better dad. So it seems like there's a, they're kind of going all over the place with him, but it is eventually revealed that Aaron Eccles is the one who committed the murder. And something that I've always been very curious about is, was this the plan from the beginning? Because if it was, then... It just feels weird the way where they started with Aaron Eccles and where he ended up. It doesn't, it doesn't, because I think they very, they, they obviously kind of talk about him being a womanizer in the in the middle episodes, and that leads to its own set of situations, and then he commits to being a better family man when his uh, wife presumably uh, commits suicide and all that stuff. Uh, but you learn that he has a temper, as he sees taking out on his daughter's boyfriend who is physically abusing her but the way that they drop those two things in that he's an adulterer and that he has a temper is subtle enough that you don't necessarily connect it to like huh well maybe he could have been the one who killed lily kane because you're so focused on learning about duncan's mental disorder that when they bring it up to about um when they bring it up about aaron eccles sort of half-heartedly you kind of think nothing of it and i think that's actually uh it's it's very brilliantly subtle. Like, when you think back to it, it makes sense. But, uh, yeah, I think early on it's more about him being the actor and Logan feeling like he he enjoys the fruits of having a famous parents and the money that they bring him, but there are certain things he doesn't like, like the paparazzi and some of the other things that go along with being the son of a, a famous father. But I do think even if, if it was from the beginning or even if it wasn't, I do think that the seeds playing along the way are, are, are one of interest. I do wonder if, you know, he gives up his acting career and he says part of that is to grief and to become a better family man now that his wife is gone. But part of me wonders if it's to kind of get out of the spotlight in order to still try to go into hiding from the whole Lily Kane murder, even though Abel Koontz is behind bars. Maybe he suspects that keeping a low profile will, will, will make it harder to be found out in a way. I don't know. Maybe I'm just 
making that up. Right. And I really like Harry Hamlin in the role. And I think he is, he has run, he runs into the same problem as Brad Pitt does or because Harry Hamlin was basically this, this sex symbol leading man in the 1980s. He was on LA law and he was in clash of the Titans and he was in all these big movies when in reality, he's probably best as as a character actor doing these smaller roles like on Veronica Mars. He was also on Mad Men in kind of a small role. I thought he was really good on that show. And I think Brad Pitt is, is kind of in the same boat. The best Bat- Brad Pitt movies to me are the ones where he is a supporting character or where he is part of an ensemble. And I think he is... I, I know he, we cannot consider him a guest star, but I really like that they used him on this show because I think it is plausible to see him as a movie star. The fact that he was a movie star himself, I think there's some meta commentary and the fact that that is his real life wife who was in the role as well. Lisa Rena playing his wife. I think that that all plays into it too. It does. Yeah. He definitely has that look of that, of, of what that actor that Aaron Eccles would be like. I, I very, I find him very convincing in that role too, for sure. I was going to ask, did you have any other thoughts on kind of the main plot line? If you want to make your point now, go ahead. Yeah, I think the thing I like most about it with Veronica is that her discovering who murdered Lily Kane is multifaceted. Uh, one, we talk about she can maybe find out who raped her if she discovers it. Uh, two, you know, two, she can put behind bars the pers- the right person who murdered her best friend. But three, if she finds out it was somebody who wasn't Abel Kuhn, she gets to clear her father's name, who was disgraced by the whole town after he thought that it wasn't Abel Kuhn and perhaps Lily's father who did it. Uh, even if they didn't find out Lily's father, if, if he didn't do it, even discovering that it wasn't Abel Kuntz and it was the wrong person, I think she thinks is going to help restore the good name of Keith Mars to the town. Absolutely. And I genuinely love how incompetent the police are in the entire run of this series because there is almost not a single redeemable quality about them. Even Max Greenfield's character, Leo, is proven to be kind of incompetent in this first season, and that is an endless source of amusement for me. Even when they have the other cop come to Wallace's house when they have the deadbeat... uh like the, the renter in their house and the cops are like, well, can't do anything. You just have to take it to the courts. And then Keith just comes and takes care of it himself in a day. Right. And it's, it's so great. So I think that one of the critiques of kind of this peak TV era is that you have quote unquote, 70 hour movies. That's what the game of Thrones creators called what they did with game of Thrones that the, the episodes don't really matter. It's about the, the entirety of the run. And when you're binging TV shows this day, these days, I think that's what you run into a lot is the individual episodes kind of run together. Kevin, do you find that in your TV watching experience these days that when you're binging something and you're watching, uh, especially with dramas that things kind of just end up running together? It depends on the show. I think the answer is yes in that a lot of these shows, like, I couldn't tell you this happened in episode this. I know it happened at some point in the series, but it's rare to have an entire episode stand out on its own unless you get something that is kind of a bottle episode or very specifically one, one uh, like a, a, a villain of the week for Buffy or something like that. Um but I think if you, with enough with enough plot, with enough characters, with enough stories, like within all these, 
within the larger thread, they do have these one-off mysteries that are kind of solved within one episode. I do think it makes the episode stand out more, and I do think, while it is still very easy to watch in a, in a bingeable format. So I think Veronica is a little bit more easy to decipher from episode to episode than if you did sit down and just watch something that is like a 70-hour movie. So I don't think this falls victim to that criticism, personally. No, I don't either. And I think it was more talking about comparing this to the way that modern TV runs. And I think that this show does a great job of balancing those individual plot lines and still kind of teasing out this mystery because there's there's no way that I would be able to watch 22 episodes of just focusing on this mystery. And I think giving having a mystery of the week, I think the best part, what that does is it lets you get involved with some of the other characters and it also gets you in, in investing in the show on a weekly basis and feeling like something is accomplished as opposed to unfortunately having to deal with this idea of everything is just so connected and it's really hard to follow that still kinds it kind of ends up happening but i really do like the fact that there are individual episodes because that is sometimes th- something that uh that gets lost it does get lost but and yeah i think that's it is something that gets lost but again i think veronica mars does a does a great job avoiding that pitfall Absolutely. Let's talk about favorite episodes, favorite moments over the course of the season. Kevin, what would you say? Do you have a favorite episode? My favorite episode would be the Christmas episode with uh, all the the boys in high school getting drunk and uh, playing cards or playing poker more specifically and the money, the pot that's held in Logan's troubadour disappears. And Veronica's called in to investigate. There's a big whodunit. Uh, and that, to me, is all super fun how it un- unravels throughout the course of the episode, how Veronica's piecing together the clues. It's It reminds me in some ways a lot of like the movie clue and the way that she uh, figures out people and sort of calls their proverbial bluffs, no pun intended, with the poker thing. Uh, but to me, as a as one solitary episode, that's my favorite. And of course, it ends uh, with uh, Aaron Eccles being stabbed by a former lover of his, um, and it's obviously juxtaposed with they have these singers singing Christmas carols out front. So that being a cliffhanger makes it to me my favorite episode of the season for sure. So I'm really glad that we don't have the same answer because that would be boring. But my episode is literally the one that happens beforehand. It is called Drinking the Kool-Aid. It is the episode where they think that this student, Casey, has joined a cult. And there are so many misdirects. Is this an actual cult? Are they genuinely doing good things? Is Casey a rich asshole? Is it better for him to be in this cult because he's going to donate all of his money? That is an episode that I think is so nuanced and deals with things in such an interesting way because it is so easy to do these cult episodes. And they actually did one later on in the season that I don't think was nearly as effective with this the secret society. But in this case, what I love so much about the episode is that even watching this a third or fourth time, 
it's still compelling because you genuinely don't know where this is going. And in a lot of ways, Veronica Mars herself goes through kind of a character change because she thinks one thing about Casey and the situation and it changes throughout the episode as she kind of witnesses things and I think we see her character develop and we see a lot of good stuff with Keith when Veronica is secretly at the side of the cult and Keith walks up and they exchange looks. That's, that is a really good moment that exists in this season. So as far as being able to tell an individual story, I really like this and... Part of the other reason that I like this episode so much is they also tease Veronica possibly being the biological daughter of Jay Kane, and boy, what a what a nut they could have cracked there. If they, if if Duncan and Veronica were were brother and sister, we would have gotten incest on a major television show years before Game of Thrones. Yeah, that would have been. I, I guess very ahead of the curve for Rob Thomas if he were to go that way. But yeah, that's I, this is the one I was talking about, I think, where it ends with her destroying the, the DNA test results without looking at him for Keith. And I'm glad you chose that episode, too. I think this is a perfect example of you, you start an episode and you're like, all right, it's the cliche cult episode, and then it doesn't go that way at all. And I think there's several episodes in this in this show where you think they're going to go the cliche mystery show route and they totally flip it on its head. And I really like that about Veronica Mars. That, to me, is part of why I like it so much. And really, I think there are, there are a lot of really, really great episodes. I think that, especially early on, the, the poker episode that you mentioned, I think, is, is really great. Uh, the episode Meet John Smith with Melissa Leo as a guest star, and they kind of deal with trans issues. Maybe not in the best way, but I think for its time, I think they were a bit ahead of the curve. And... I really, really appreciated what they did there. You know, it's funny, Buffy has done a modern reboot where they have, with the comic books, where the characters are living in 2019 and just how much things have changed. I'd be very curious to see what Veronica Mars starting in 2019 would look like and how they handle some of these different situations, especially the trans issues and the class issues, which have only become more important. Yeah, it's crazy that this is in 2004 and you're getting episode about a transgendered male to female person and how they have to deal with their new life and they abandon their kid like watching this again we're watching this in 2019 and all this it's it blew me away to see that this episode and thinking back like man this was 15 years ago when just like this stuff wasn't talked about ever at all like i mean this 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 whole thing is still like pretty new with that for just for the mainstream audience for so for this to be happening UPN at this time is a, like just still is baffling to me. It's crazy in, in a very positive way. All right. So throughout the run of Veronica Mars, there were a number of guest stars, some of whom have become some of the biggest actors still going. We're talking about Melissa Leo, who is an Academy Award winning or Academy Award nominated actress. We are talking about Jessica Chastain. It blew your mind that Jessica Chastain was in an episode. That it did. I, I texted you right away. I was like, what the heck is she doing in here? Because, you know, Molly's Game just came out and she got a lot of critical acclaim for that. And she's like tippy top Hollywood at this point. So to see her on a UPN show all those years ago is just, you know, the, the main actress for an episode uh, was is just so interesting to watch these day in, this day and age. 
All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna derail this podcast to ask you a trivia question, Kevin. There are two movies this year with James McAvoy and Jessica Chastain starring together. Can you name those two movies? X Men Apocalypse. It's not Apocalypse. It's Dark Phoenix. Ah, oh, it is Dark Phoenix. Sorry, they're all the same. I thought you were gonna forget Dark Phoenix because I've seen Dark Phoenix and I keep forgetting that Jessica Chastain was in it. I do a podcast about superheroes and I keep forgetting that Jessica Chastain was in that movie. Well, believe it or not, that's the one I've seen. I, 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 I'm not gonna be able to pull the name of the other one. I know they did stuff on Conan promoting it, but I couldn't tell you the name of it. It Chapter Two is the movie that will also be starring those two as well. Jessica Chastain, pretty great. Who is your favorite guest star? So this is actually going to be an interesting answer because they had so many people in the show that I loved. You talk about Buffy. I love Allison Hannigan. Uh, she was uh, the sister of uh, Logan Eccles, daughter of Aaron Eccles. I, t- I mentioned Leighton Meester before. In that same episode, Adam Scott appears. So there's your party down connection there. Uh, Aaron Paul was nobody when he was a guest star here, but of course Breaking Bad became a big hit for him years later. He had another Mean Girls actor in Jonathan Bennett. Jane Lynch was in an episode, and of course, I really liked her already at this point from uh, the Christopher Guest movies, but then of course Glee would happen. But I have to say, the one the one guest star that came in that really surprised me with how well they did was Anthony Anderson uh, as basically the role of Suge Knight in this show. He wasn't called that, but it was the whole thing about, there's rumors about him throwing somebody off a balcony and all that, so uh, you can, that's very parallel to a real story that he was in. But I thought... I feel like I only see him in like family comedies or on sitcoms on shows, but here he's playing this very serious role of this mogul, this producer who hires Mars Investigations to find his missing daughter. And I thought he just did a really fantastic job in that episode. I think it's, there's a lot of actors I liked, but I think they met my expectations. Like you mentioned characters kind of doing the same thing. Other show like Adam Scott was Adam Scott. Uh, Jane Lynch was Jane Lynch and they're great in doing that role, but it's not something that I was blown away by. But Anthony Anderson did something that I don't see him do very often and do it really well. And that to me is why he stuck out to me so much for the season. You didn't pick finger cuffs, finger cuffs. Oh, Julia Lauren Adams. Of course. I am so glad that you got that reference. I was going to be very disappointed in you if you did not get the Joey Lauren Adams reference from Chasing Amy. Well, I knew I, I knew it was I knew it was Kevin Smith right away, but I was like, who from? And then I immediately remember it was Joey Lauren Adams because she doesn't really act at all anymore, does she? She's not in a lot of stuff. I know she was in a couple of Adam Sandler movies, but she really hasn't been in a lot. And that is not my answer. Unfortunately, I thought I was going to go against the grain by saying Anthony Anderson, but I am going to agree with you. Anthony Anderson has had a very strange career. He was on like this crappy NBC morning show called Hang Time, where he was a basketball player, and he's just kind of bounced around doing a number of different things. He was on Law and Order for a couple of seasons as a detective, if you can believe that. He was on, on here, of course. And he now he's hosting game shows and he's on Blackish and I think he's someone who's always been very good. I haven't necessarily always liked the shows that he's on, but I think he's always been very good and I think he really nails the role of Shug Knight and I think his performance legitimately does stand out amongst the pack. And I certainly think there are other guest stars who I think are good, but I think Anthony Anderson is probably the best. I think he is he brings a lot of charisma to this role. I really can't if I could Harry Hamlin really isn't a guest star. Otherwise, I would say him. But I'm 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 going to go with 
with Anthony Anderson as well. Although seeing Adam Scott and his hair, his hair really threw me off. And him being, uh, uh, you know, uh, pedophile also threw me off too. It's because we we t- we always associate Adam Scott with Parks and Rec now and forever. That party down and just like being a generally pretty good guy. I mean, aside from like Step Brothers, I can't think of any other movie where he's just like a total dick. I'm sure there's plenty. Don't don't tweet me them. I don't need to hear them. So so this is this is gonna we're gonna link your two interests together. I, I have a friend who firmly believes and has campaigned for this, and we've talked about this a number of times. He says that Adam Scott should be Mr. Fantastic. Hmm, that's interesting. Should I let you mull this over and we can come back to this next month when we talk about season two? Possibly. I My, my reaction off the bat is obviously I like Adam Scott, but uh, this would be a bit of a sea change for him. I don't know that I don't know that he could pull off that that side of him but you know what then again i didn't know that dave batista could be a great drac so what do i know i mean he's no miles teller but who is yeah nobody is for sure all right so one of the things that i put in the notes is hashtag problematic because again we are watching this with 2019 eyes so there are some things that really haven't aged well there's two episodes in particular that I think have not aged well. Kevin, which one do you want to discuss? And then I will discuss the other one. Um, well, <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll, I'm going to talk about the one that we that you had actually prepared me for a little bit. Uh, and that was, um, I think it's called Mad, M-A-D is the name of the episode. It's where this girl, Carmen, uh, her boyfriend has this video of her doing like a compromising. She's like sucking on a popsicle like it's very phallic in a way. And there's threats to turn it over, and basically the way that they solve this is to essentially doctor some phone calls and stuff that they're going to send off to, like, military school who's going to make him seem gay and ruin his reputation in life because he would be gay going to these things. And this sends him into a panic and saves the girl's day, and uh, boy, does that not hold up well 15 years later. I mean, this is Neptune, California. Would this be an issue in California? Like, if we're talking about, like, rural Tennessee or rural Kentucky, then maybe this is relevant. But even in 2004, given their location, I still question kind of its relevance. I mean, obviously, in 2019, I think the idea is, is basically absurd if you, live in a, if you live in a city or if you live in California, which generally is regarded as one of the more liberal states. Yeah, but it's it's still, you know, I I think the wrinkle of it being like a military school where he's going adds a different layer to that. And also like high school is still high school. You're always going to have your your jerks that are going to find any reason to to point out your differences and make fun of you. You you never know. The episode that I'm going to talk about is the one with Adam Scott as uh, as playing a teacher and I really like the opening scene. This is probably my favorite opening scene, regardless of how I feel about the episode and the fact that it is hashtag problematic. I actually really like the episode. The execution is actually really good, and it does go in a number of interesting directions. But basically, every time we see high school portrayed on the show, everybody hates it. But Adam Scott is like the one teacher that everybody likes. And there's this moment when he is enthusiastically leading the charge, so to speak, until this big moment when we see Meester's character basically accuse him of sexual assault. And that's kind of the plot line for the episode. As it turns out, 
Leitmeister was not sexually assaulted. She, in fact, was making it up, which is kind of the first kind of questionable part of it. But there is a, a woman who basically... I don't know if rape is the proper term. I believe it would be considered statutory rape because he impregnated somebody who was underage and has had a history of doing this. And I also think that this is something that hasn't aged well because Veronica Mars does some slut shaming in this episode. There are a couple of episodes where she actually does this, so that doesn't necessarily work. And the idea of somebody making up a sexual assault, which I always have to bring this statistic up, it only happens 10% of the time, but on a TV or movie, it's generally 90% the other way. So I think that is the other problematic story, and we could probably bring up others as well, but I think those were the two episodes that stood out that were particularly bad. For, yeah, for sure. And and it's, it, again, we're looking at it through different eyes. It's I, I, I can see at this time it not being a big problem, and I'm sure some people would say, oh, it's television. But I guess, you know, certain shows in certain ways weren't weren't viewed the same way. But again, for a show that's in general very forward-thinking and ahead of the curve on some of these issues, it's, it, it, it even stood out at this time, I think. And I do think that despite my feelings on that episode and it being an issue, I still kind of enjoy the episode. I think it still was very well-written and well-performed, and... I think that's that's the thing that that makes this that makes it so difficult sometimes is that you are engaged with the actors and when they do things like this or when things like this happen on movies or TV shows it kind of kind of makes you whines a little bit and wonder why can't you do better so yeah definitely definitely true I would say that for sure about the Adam Scott episode Matt isn't isn't that great really it's just like a roundabout way of of learning that. Um, that supposedly Logan had the drug that Veronica was drugged with at the party. Like that's basically what you get out of the whole episode and the rest is just kind of whatever. All right. And in the end, Aaron Eccles is arrested. The Kane family is very angry at this. For me, season one is, is a, is kind of a championship level season in that they told a really good story that was engaging for 22 episodes I think they were able to build up these characters really well, subtly doing things with Aaron Eccles, the Veronica-Keith relationship kind of being at the heart of this, shifting Duncan away from a potential love interest, kind of moving him into the background. I, I liked some of the stuff that Veronica was doing with Mac and Wallace, even though I kind of wish that we had seen more of them, but I still think it was good to, to have that. And... Veronica interacting with Weevil. We didn't even mention Cliff. We didn't mention poor Cliff. He was pretty awesome too. I love that. I love that actor in general because he kind of hams it up a little bit, but he hams it up in a way that I think is is kind of endearing. Oh, I love Ken Marino. He or no, not that's not Ken Marino. That's um, oh gosh, what's his name? He was also on iZombie as well. Darren Norris. That's his name. Yeah, uh, he was the newsman on there. Yeah, Cliff. Cliff is a really great. Uh, kind of a partner PI-ish to, to the Mars family. Who does, uh, what is, what is uh, Ken Marino's character in Veronica Mars? I love him too. Vincent. Yeah. Vinny Van Lowe. That's right. He's great. Uh, him, him singing into the pen out the window as Veronica and the, the poor girl who lost her dog are sitting there. Oh my God. I thought they almost killed the dog, Jerome. I was so upset. <laughs> of all the things to happen on this show, assault, murder, slut shaming, Gay panic. 
that's that's what raises your dander up. Well, this is the problem with white people who don't have problems in their lives is we care about the darn dogs more than we do the real issues. I'm not I'm not I'm not going to touch that one. All I'm going to say is I I so closely associate Ken Marino with the show that it's surprising how little he is. He basically doesn't even get introduced into like the second half toward the end, but it just feels like he was like a a, a huge part of this cast for the whole run, but he really wasn't. And I think that says a lot about Ken Marino because I, I don't I'm not sure I would have liked his character if he was in every episode. But I think putting him in like one in every four or five episodes is perfect. I agree with you. Yeah, I, he he casts a big shadow over the show. But yeah, especially in season one, at least he's really not around all that often. I, I think you're right. The money where it says that says something about Ken Marino. And speaking of dogs, I think one of my favorite moments in the whole show is in episode one where Veronica's out to do a stakeout and uh, Keith says, "Bring back a." And she literally brings their dog back up as backup. I love that. What a great dog name. But back, there are two different backups, though. Backup changes from the pilot to the second episode. Oh, that's bound to happen. You changed the casting of the dog. What happened to the first dog? I don't know. Maybe the maybe got a better gig somewhere. Higher paying gig. Did he have it wolf? I'm not answering that. <laughs> All right. So the first season is really, really great. Kevin, what are your final thoughts on the uh, the first season? Really strong stuff, strong characters. I, I, this is a, I think one of the reasons I talk about with with Joss Whedon is I think he's so good at juggling large casts. You look at Buffy, Angel, Firefly, and I think that's a big reason why he wrote the Avengers was because they knew he's somebody who could handle casts really well. And I think Rob Thomas did a pretty Herculean effort in coming close. There's obviously a, a very strong emphasis on Veronica and her father and uh, Logan and some other characters who don't get their due. But I think in general, they do a pretty good job of making sure you're keeping tabs on everybody, giving you a compelling mystery each episode while also keeping the through line of the main mystery going, giving you enough to go on each and every episode. Uh, and of course, the little cliffhanger with Veronica at the end opening the door and saying, I hope it would be you and you don't see who it is. Really strong season one. I'm really excited to get uh, into season two. I'm, I'm a little sad we have to wait a whole month to talk about it. Yes, that is the approach that we are taking. We are basically going to review either one season or one movie per month. So when we come back at the, towards the beginning of October, we will talk about season two. Beginning of November will be season three. And then in December, January, we'll tackle the film, two published books, as well as... Season 4, which is currently streaming on Hulu. As a matter of fact, the entire series can be found on Hulu, so if you would like to keep up with us, you can do so on that particular streaming service. Because if there's one thing, Kevin, there aren't that many streaming services out there. No, there's there's so few. I, I can't believe there's not more for me to choose from. Next month, we are going to be talking about Season 2. It will be our first opportunity to see Kristen Bell interact with a member of the cast from Three Men and a Baby. Are you excited? No, I that means nothing to me. Did we make Steve Gutenberg a star? Okay, so I do like Steve Gutenberg, but his uh, his tie into Three Men and a Baby does nothing to me. Uh, but uh, uh, it is nice that he took time away from the Stonecutters to come do this episode. Right, that is that is the most important thing. So, Kevin, why don't you plug anything else that you would like to plug before we get out of here? 
Yeah, you you very kindly mentioned my Twitter at KFord13. You can contact me there. I have another podcast here on the network. It is a completed project from Broadcast Depth, an episode my, myself and my dear close personal friend Ben Lundy did, covering all six seasons of Lost. There are currently 63 podcasts for you to listen to on Enter the Real World, the longest-running show on that website. Never took a week off. We not only covered all the episodes, we covered the alternate reality games, their books, uh, video games, epilogues, bunch of other fun stuff there. So if it's about Lost, there's probably a podcast episode on it, and you can check that out in the archives here on Enter the Real World, where you're listening to this wonderful podcast. Absolutely. I do Superhero Pantheon. That is an ongoing podcast. Recently, we put the entire Christopher Nolan trilogy into the Superhero Pantheon. We've also done episodes on every episode or every movie that is within the MCU. And by the time you're listening to this, you'll probably be able to hear our episode on The Justice League, a movie that came out in 2017. That is a fact. That is an actual movie that came out that did not make nearly as much money as either Wonder Woman or Aquaman, even though that movie has Gal Gadot and Jason Momoa. It's pretty amazing how that happens. For Kevin Ford, my name is Jerome Cusan. Thank you so much for listening to Mars Investigated. We will talk to you again next month. How did SmackDown beat this show in the ratings?